1: Here comes the relief from the pain, unapologetically. This is Luck and Load with Bill Frady.
2: And good afternoon. This is lock and load and uh you know today right now we're going to start off with just me and you to begin with uh, apparently um once again the left has found a new way to go against your gun rights despite the brewing decision first we had and this this appears to be the uh, second wave first wave was brewing response laws uh, that were brought about to, uh, you know, oh, well, we don't get to do that. Well, we're going to do this instead, which we saw in New York and California, especially New York, New York. Uh, and one by one, they've been knocked down. You know, they've been being pushed, pushed around a lot. Now we have a whole new thing starting with these various circuit courts. And despite the Bruin decision. The various courts out there, despite the guidance given them by the Supreme Court, they continue to try to do their very level best to hold things up, especially their interpretation regarding an AR-5-style rifle. And so three 2A advocacy groups are asking the high court to step in before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals can hold an in-bang herring on Maryland's assault weapons ban. Now, we recently saw this in, you know, with the spirit of Aloha coming out of Hawaii, which I haven't really examined uh, too deeply here. I think we may have discussed it very, you know, on a very light basis. But, you know, with, with this one, right, that seems to have been the straw that burnt the camel's back. So a coalition of gun rights groups has moved to avoid a tactic that is being used, allowing activist judges to carry their water when it comes to interpreting the Bruin decision on the Second Amendment. Now, the spirit of aloha, of course, is uh, what they're referring to when they talk about what we saw coming out of Hawaii. This is where the Supreme Court of Hawaii decided to overrule the United States Supreme Court's Bruin decision. Bruin reversed the various interpretations of the Second Amendment by courts, Using reduced levels of scrutiny to gun rights cases, the lowered level of scrutiny permitted them to use occasionally convoluted logic to uphold firearm restrictions in their various jurisdictions. And because it was uh, so, it was primarily based on just an imaginary setup. No, no two of these things were actually the same way the way you would think a legal precedent would be based on detail. And Bruin should have remedied that. Heller left a lot of doors open. Bruin should have remedied that. And it has led to the vacation of many state restrictions on the carrying of guns. But in the Bruin decision, the court ruled that the two-step tests of intermediate scrutiny were, in the words of Clarence Thomas, one step too many when it came to the right to keep and bear arms. So in other words, laws that are inconsistent with the nation's historic tradition of firearm regulation infringed on the rights of the individual. Under that interpretation, Hawaii's Second Circuit Court dismissed charges against a resident who was charged with carrying a pistol without the requisite carry permit. This was appealed to the Hawaii Supreme Court. There, they concluded that we reject Wilson's constitutional challenges, conventional interpretive modalities, and Hawaii's historical tradition of firearm regulation rule out an individual right to keep and bear arms under the hawaii constitution in hawaii there is no constitutional right to carry a firearm in public that's sort of insurrection right there that kind of statement you know they're basically saying we you know, this is this is the same kind of thing that happened during the civil war this is where a state got out there and said we're we, we, we're not beholden to this that's what hawaii's done So this will be a battle between the state and federal Supreme courts and the state Supreme court references a constitution written when the islands were a separate kingdom, not one of the 50 States. It appears there's a disconnect between the state Supreme court using historical precedent locally applied to counter a legal precedent that looks first to its own historical precedent. And Hawaii Supremes may find that they're not the only justices who watch TV uh, their semi reversal uh, reference HBO's The Wire with a quote The thing about the old days, they the old days. They might do well to remember an old movie quote, this one from Hoosiers. Sun doesn't shine on the same dog's butt every day, but mister, you ain't seen a ray of light since you got there. Since you got here, excuse me. And the United States Supreme Court isn't pleased when lower courts contort themselves to get their desired outcome. They're especially unhappy when the lower court essentially thumbs their nose in their direction and on their decisions. And this sets the stage for a question that seems to be emerging. What can slash will the U.S. Supreme Court do about lower courts at delay or in the case of the Hawaii court ignore their clear interpretations of the law? Now, this was always going to come up. This was never not going to come up. You know, we sort of operate basically on the honor system in most cases in the United States. So the Supreme Court has the ability to find lower courts in contempt. And following that ruling, they have the power to remove offending parties, including the officers of a lower court. It even has the ability to order imprisonment for disobedience or resistance to its lawful writ, process, order, rule, decree or command. This would require ordering federal marshals to arrest non-compliant judges. And uh, that's in keeping with the U.S. Constitution, which states the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The big question remains unanswered, but the challenge has been issued by Hawaii. Meanwhile second amendment foundation the citizens committee for the right to keep and bear arms and the firearms policy coalition have petitioned the supreme court to take up their challenge to maryland's ban on assault weapons before the richmond virginia-based fourth circuit court can hear the case and it's fair to categorize this as a preemptive move to prevent them and their apparent reluctance to accept a three-judge judicial panel's finding on maryland's ban In their petition, they categorize the forced decision as the most brazen example of how appeals courts are failing to heed the clear teaching of this court's precedent on the right to keep and bear arms. A three-panel judge of the Fourth Circuit had heard the arguments regarding Maryland's ban in December 2022, but the court voted to have the full 14-member court hear the case before the panel could issue its ruling. And to most observers, that's a sign that the full court did not like the conclusion reached by the three-judge panel. Adam Kraut at the SA, at SAF said in a statement, the in-bank hearing decision seems to imply the court desired to take this case from a panel with which it disagreed. And in their petition, the groups made the case that the court should step in now to make it clear once and for all that the most popular rifles in the history of the nation are protected by the Second Amendment. And that's also the valid question of political ideology. Two of the three judges on the panel were Republican appointees. The full court has eight Democrat appointees versus six Republican administration selections. So we're going to see how this works out. But, but this is, this is, this is a very interesting little moment for us to be sitting here and observing this because this could be one of these things where Finally, we're going to find out a few things about how resolute some of these guys are. If they go and were to actually lock up some justices from the Hawaii Supreme Court, I think a few people would notice that. I think a few people would uh, would hear that deafening clank of the door as it swings shut on them for failing to adhere to what, in most cases, everybody out there would call the law of the land. Of course, it's not if it's for gun rights never can be it's a new thing they just discovered a reinterpretation a reimagination of things if you will of course it's not never has been it's you know the the literal text of the second amendment it means what it says we'll be right back this is lock and load <laughs> What's in a name? If that name is Ace Firearms, you've just entered a very expensive business. First, a fully appointed gun shop with all the guns, ammo, and accessories you could possibly imagine. But then you enter the manufacturing facility that is home to Red Alligator Concealment, Militia Arms Customs, and so much more. Ace Firearms is beyond a simple gun shop. This is a totally peerless operation. To find out more, go to acefirearms.com. Ace Firearms, this is only the beginning. and welcome back this is lock and load my administration is always pushing out propaganda and right now they're on a rampage and of course the attacks focus on guns. So um he's being presented of, as the face of the newly fabricated community violence awareness week which appears to be nothing more than a new left-wing political holiday for the purpose of spreading anti-gun propaganda. Now despite all evidence to the contrary, right? You know, they 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 they, they the, the White House and the left seems very confident in their method part of their method is semantic theft they get out there and they re- repurpose or just out like steal and redefine words out there to make certain people believe that there is that gun violence is just you know a thing which gun violence is a political term There's no scissor violence. There's no uh, potted plant violence. There's lots of things that can be used in a violent. As a matter of fact, I can't think of too many things. that cannot be repurposed as a weapon with somebody with enough imagination. I mean, you can kill somebody with a magazine. So, and I'm not talking about a gun magazine. I'm talking about home and gardens. I'm not going to tell you how, but you can. Now, the White House gun grabbers continue to complain that they need action from Congress on their so-called gun violence epidemic. See, now we're using three words to make a wholly contrived phrase here, uh, as if this is just catching in the air. And the new approach is to label gun-related deaths as a health crisis for the purpose of justifying executive action. Now, was past September. He launched... The Office of Gun Violence Prevention and coincidentally expedited the implementation of his executive laws on gun laws and measures in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Magically, the new violations to the Second Amendment created a $750 billion fund that would be used to leverage states into implementing red flag laws. Red flag laws essentially result in the confiscation of firearms without due process, without having committed any crime at all. Greg Jackson, excuse me, Greg Jackson, deputy director of this office. Gun violence is a public health crisis that impacts our communities every day. So this is much the same. They're using this as the new COVID. Of course, they can't do it so much on, you know, as heavily as they could with COVID. But they can in certain places where people are less informed. So. Under the appearance of the health crisis, his handlers can pave the way for him to sign executive orders at the behest of the angry, radical left gun lobby. That's why the propaganda machine will start using the term health crisis more often when the topic of guns comes up. And remember, when the COVID health crisis gave state and federal officer, officials the perceived authority to implement executive orders, remember that? Using the term health crisis is a trick, Just like the way they use the term gun violence to cover for human violence. When violence is attached to the word gun, the anti-gun bureaucrat can push legislation. If violence were associated with human behavior, as it should be, they would be forced to deal with the societal problems they create through bad policy, which always that always leads back to them and they can't have that. So they're trying desperately to have this new Community Violence Awareness Week coincide with Black History Month. And Joe Biden is scheduled to deliver a message recognizing Community Violence Awareness Week in the hopes of people recognizing it as a national holiday. <laughs> so that, Does that mean paid time off, too, Joe? According to the USA Today, Biden's White House will be holding several events focused on combating the so-called gun violence in black communities. And it would appear the planned virtual meetings and roundtable discussion invitations are limited to black leaders and black elected officials only. It's been reported that these meetings will follow up or will be followed up by a workshop where local and state leaders can learn how to obtain federal resources for new community safety programs. Now, Joe Biden has repeatedly called on Congress to ban semi-automatic rifles, limit ammunition access through dangerously small capacity magazines, and pass stricter background check legislation that would potentially deny many more legal purchases and create more gun registry traps for citizens. But and listen very carefully to this. Right now, those efforts, this push is targeted and focused primarily on black communities. So, once again, the Democrats are acting on their little racial, uh, you know, their racial racist impulses and doing everything they can to remove the ability of black community members to exercise their Second Amendment right. So, just for the sake of you understanding what I'm talking about, let's recap the new strategy. First of all, you have to declare a health crisis. This is all based, this is all based on COVID. This all happens right now today is happening right now because of COVID, because everybody reacted exactly the way they wanted them to react during COVID. Item number one. Item number two, use executive orders to implement red flag laws. That's going to get them sued out of existence right there. First of all, that's not something that has been passed anywhere. And this would be a federal mandate that would be, is this only going to impact black communities? Is it going to impact the state? Is it going to impact the city? Where's the jurisdiction? Who's going to be enforcing these things? They want to create a community violence awareness week and associate with black history month. Black America is not inherently violent. Anyone put into these types of situations in this type of environment are going to react to survive. Now Black America was, you know, they were coerced well not coerced. Let's let's say they had the they had the carrot on the stick to come into the cities and all this other stuff. And then they just became a captured segment of Americana. So they're focusing primarily on black communities. That's item number four. Item number five. They want to create programs to train black community leaders on how to obtain federal money so that they can use to implement gun control on the folks living within their communities. Now, this is a violation of the 14th Amendment at this point, because if it's only happening in the black community, what about the white community that's outside of the black community? Why are they not subject to the same law? Number six, they sell self-inflicted gun control to the people of the communities under the label "Safer Communities Act." Now, who doesn't want a safer community, right? Who, Who doesn't want that? And at the same time, at the same time, that's not what they're that's not what they're pushing because the only people that are actually going to pay any attention to this are going to be the people that already follow the law. but don't worry they're doing this to keep people safe maybe making it easier for people of all communities to exercise their god-given right of self-defense and keep the bad guy in jail that would be the solution to human violence robert Heinlein said an armed society is a polite society manners are good when one may have to back up his acts with his life and it's very clear now that the Biden administration would rather create an unarmed, helpless, government dependent society. They're already, de- you know, black America is deserting the Democrats. Well, they're going to try to coerce the leaders of the black communities into giving up their rights voluntarily. Wow. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load.
0: a news update. As lawmakers rush to avert a partial government shutdown, border funding and aid to Ukraine have emerged as significant hurdles. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer emphasized the gravity of the situation, noting that history is watching following President Biden's meeting with congressional leaders aimed at resolving the deadlock. In February, consumer confidence dropped. The Consumer Confidence Index, as reported by the conference board, fell by nearly four points following three consecutive months of improvement. The board's chief economist attributed the decline in February to persistent uncertainty surrounding the U.S. economy. Analysts at UBS Security suggest that Netflix might increase its prices this year. In a research note, they anticipate a potential price hike from the streaming platform. Coupled with increased revenue from its ad-supported tier and growing subscriber base, the move could lead to a total revenue growth of 15%. John Schaefer, USA News.
4: Let me tell you a story about Bill. Bill was a normal guy in his 50s. He had back surgery about two years ago. Bill was in a lot of pain. He dealt with his pain by taking the Percocets his doctor prescribed for him. Bill took more and more and more of them to help with the pain until one day the prescriptions weren't enough to get rid of Bill's pain. Then one day Bill found someone to help him get rid of the pain with illegal drugs he didn't need a prescription for. Fast forward to today. Bill lost his job and his family. The only thing he does have is his drug dealer. If you know Bill's story and you don't want to end up like Bill, call the Detox and Treatment Helpline right now to get away and get treatment. 800-296-1327. 800-296-1327. 800-296-1327. Call right now. Help is standing by. 800-296-1327.
6: Go to GCNfood.com, GCNfood.com. dot com,
2: and welcome back. This is lock and load. By now, everybody's heard. Uh, you probably heard that the uh, there was a shooting at Joel Osteen's church or one of his churches. I, I don't know how many churches Joel Osteen has. And of course, well, that's just another. That's another. That's another opportunity for us to push the old gun control, gun violence meme thing. Another, another chance to do that because we never, you know, <laughs> we never get enough chances to do that. As we, uh, as we decide, you know, once again, let's, let's, let's call this what it is. This is human violence. This is humans being violent to each other. Anyway, the police haven't released a lot of details about this. Left two people injured, one female suspect dead, but that hasn't stopped the Texas Democrats from blaming the state's reckless gun laws for the incident. Which, there's nothing in the reckless gun law that uh, Texas is putting out there that's actually reckless. As a matter of fact, it's illegal to kill people or shoot people and stuff like that, unless it's in self-defense. But in a press release on Sunday afternoon, pushed out just a couple of hours after this news broke, Texas Democratic Party Chairman Gilberto Hinojosa called the shooting yet another example of the danger and trauma that reckless gun laws have bestowed upon our communities, adding that no place of worship, shopping center, classroom, or shared public space is safe under the leadership of those that place the gun lobby over Texans' safety. So, what gun control law? And I'm out, and this is both rhetorical and actually me musing out loud. What gun control law would have prevented the woman? from walking into the Houston megachurch with a long gun and a five-year-old. Now, you know, Joseph didn't say that at all. He didn't mention that at all. In fact, the head of the Texas Democrats barely bothered to mention what did put an almost immediate end to the threat, or rather who put down the shooter, the off-duty law enforcement serving as armed security at the church. See, it doesn't matter to me whether it is a citizen that is the armed security detail at the church or off-duty police, having somebody armed there means now you actually have a response to an immediate threat. And that goes a long way getting out there and saying gun free zone and having nothing like that, that does nothing for you. All that means is you're sitting there going, well, of course I am a, uh, I'm a uh, law-abiding citizen, so I'll leave my shooting iron out here in the car. Then you go in the car, and if there's not somebody in there with their own shooting iron, well, then guess what? Now you're not not—you're not compliant. You're just a fish in a barrel, although you are trying to comply with the law. I get that. I understand. The woman wearing a trench coat and escorting the child walked into Osteen's Lakewood Church in between services shortly before 2 p.m. Central Time and inexplicably began to fire a long rifle which I don't know why they call it a long rifle. I suspect it wasn't that long, you know, but, but, you know, a long gun. Uh, According to Houston Police Chief Troy Finner, he said once she entered, at some point she began to fire. He added the officers on scene reported the woman, whose age was estimated at 30, 35, said she had had an explosive device. Two officers fired and struck the woman a Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission officer and a Houston Police Department officer. Unfortunately, the five-year-old was hit. There was a 57-year-old man who didn't have anything to do with it. I don't think he was shot in the leg. Now, despite the good socialist uh, declaration that the state's gun laws are to blame for the shooting, we've seen... Similar acts of violence at houses of worship in some of the most gun-controlled states in the country, including an incident in 2022 when a man opened fire at a church in Laguna Hills, California, killing one person and injuring five other uh, parishioners. We don't know the motive to this one either, but it's downright despicable for Democrats like Hina Josa to try to blame the state's gun laws for the attack while downplaying the significance of the armed presence in the sanctuary. They prevented the attacker from doing much damage, especially while his fellow Democrats around the country are doing their best to make houses of worship sensitive places where lawful carry is not allowed. New York's post-Bruin carry laws borrowed all houses of worship from allowing concealed carry on the premises, even when pastors, rabbis, and other religious leaders wanted their parishioners to be armed, though thankfully that was put on hold by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. California Democrats said the same by including churches and houses of worship in the lengthy list of gun-free zones established in SB2. Though, once again, their attempt to disarm the public has been at least temporarily thwarted by the federal courts. Now, if Hina Josa had, you know, Democrats, Hina Josa, if they had their way, only churches and houses of worship that armed gods could protect would be those who could afford the expense of hiring security for that task. And we know what a disaster would that would be. Because you know, he needs to be reminded of the armed citizens serving as uh, volunteer security for the West Freeway Church in, of Christ in West Settlement, Texas, who were on hand to stop a killer who opened fire with a shotgun in the crowded sanctuary in December 2019. There is no gun control law that is going to stop someone that wants to kill as many people as possible in a sense at a place where lawful carry is banned. And force must be fed with force. And the sooner that happens, the more lives will be saved at that time. Despite and Joseph's attempts to claim otherwise, the shooting at Lake Worth Church wasn't a failure of Texas gun law. It was proof of the importance of having an immediate armed response when lives are threatened. Whether they're off-duty cops or armed citizens serving as security for their own faith community. Unless you're going to take these targets which are regarded by these guys as soft targets. Unless you take them and harden them. Now, if you don't want something like this to happen, you have to do the exact opposite of what you do when you're trying to make it a gun-free zone. Put up a sign that says these premises are protected by armed personnel. Get on TV and make that declaration, you know? Make that declaration in the community and let everybody know that's the case. And then you won't have that happen. We've seen that happen time and time again. Adam Lanza. The Newtown, Connecticut killer. The first school he went to had a resource officer. He was not interested in getting in a gunfight. He wanted to kill a bunch of kids. He went somewhere else where they didn't have a resource officer. James, uh, James Holmes. Aurora, Colorado. He passed by a few movie theaters until he got to the one that was the gun-free zone before he went in there and decided to start shooting people up. It's happened time and time again. It will continue to happen as long as there are gun-free zones. Uvalde, Texas. There's 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 a there's a good example for if you want Uvalde. Now, thirty percent of schools in Texas have armed teachers. Uvalde was not one of them. They had a police department instead. (laughs) And somehow they had 140 some odd officers that were responding to this and they did nothing. They did nothing. They had a few still beating pulses that they put on in in, uh, school buses instead of in ambulances. You put dead people on ambulances and living people on the school buses and they died. That was just a comedy of absolute heart-rending errors. So, it's not about having, you know, allowing freedom. It's never been about allowing freedom. It has more to do with wanting to control certain aspects of things and the question has to be asked, why are they so hell-bent on making sure that you are defenseless? Why is this a thing? Why do they think this is the way it should be? Well, they they, they want it that way because, you know, being armed means you have that veto power. And that speaks to a, a further away goal of theirs and everything else. But in the end, crime is good. Murders are good for them because one day they expect you to come crying to them, begging for safety. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. back this is lock and load larry vickers you know i, I don't have him on my mind all the time but I, I think that we have been poorly served with uh what's happening to him this could almost be a uh carly simon song you're so vague you probably think this law is about like about you um the machine gun ban exemption is very vague and he pled guilty to violating the machine gun ban exemption. And, uh, as Adam Smith put it, someone who engages in malicious compliance for the crass purpose of collecting cool guns is actually helping undermine bad laws led by an invisible hand to promote an end, which was no part of his intention. Speaking of Vickers. So what's left to discuss? Well, Larry Vickers was convicted of breaking a federal paperwork law in order to acquire cool guns. It's a tragic drama. You know, his sentencing date has not yet scheduled, but the punishment will have two components. First, very possibly a prison sentence. Second part is ironic, like a punishment of the ancient Greek gods would have handed out for defying them coming from the wall street journal for vickers the felony conviction means that one of the nation's leading gun gurus can no longer own or possess firearms he must forfeit his gun collection to the u.s government prosecutors said he can still use airsoft guns but only for active shooter training nothing could be of greater punishment for him than his inability to possess use and demonstrate the use of firearms said gerald reuter his attorney Now, Larry Vickers has built his entire life around weapons, and he can keep talking about them. He can keep writing about them and teaching about them. He can take pictures of them and even be near them. But he can never legally touch one for the rest of his life. There's two ways to look at this, neither of which is particularly satisfying. The first is L.A.V.S. Sisyphus, able to get tantalizingly close to the forbidden goal but never able to touch it. Second is L A V is Beethoven, an obsessive master of something he loses the ability to experience directly. And this is a viable, if poignant, template for the remainder of Vickers' career. And the law that bans him from touching a gun is 18 U.S.C. 922-G. And you can think of this law enumerating all the different types of prohibited persons as a time capsule from 1968, the year of the law's passage. And that Congress, unknowingly, at the high-water of federal erasure of gun rights, thought that the following people, among others, should go to prison for 10 years for touching a gun. and i quote anyone number 1 anyone who's been convicted in any court of a crime punishable by imprisonment for a term exceeding 1 year number 2 anyone who's an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance addiction is undefined as the question of whether unlawful use happened one day one year or one decade ago number 3 anyone who's been adjudicated as a mental defective or has been committed to a mental institution Number four, anyone who, having been a citizen of the United States, has renounced his citizenship. Number five, anyone being an alien, A, is illegally or unlawfully in the United States, or B, except as provided in subsection, has been admitted to the United States under a non-immigrant visa. Now, for number one, the prohibition on convicted felons is very broad. It doesn't matter what you did. The nature, the seriousness, or the date of the crime don't matter. The ban is lifelong no matter what. It's also often used as a sort of Damocles that hangs over a convict, forever ready to drop the moment that a prosecutor decides that would be convenient. Like the case of Stephen Cooper caught up under Minnesota's state-level copy of the federal ban. When Stephen Cooper found a found found a gun found a gun and ammunition in the Chevy Blazer his brother gave him, he did what he thought was the right thing. He wrapped the gun in a sweatshirt. He put it inside the secure door of his apartment building and waited for his parole officer to show up. As a felon for a violent offense, Cooper isn't allowed to possess a firearm, and doing so could send him back to prison for four years. He turned the gun over to his parole officer, told her it probably belonged to his brother who recently died and left behind some belongings in the car. Cooper's parole officer called the Duluth police who put Cooper in handcuffs and took him to jail. The Department of Corrections chose not to send Cooper back to prison for violating parole. A spokesperson for the department said Cooper was formerly sanctioned and had conditions of a supervised release restructured. But the St. Louis County Attorney's Office charged him with felony possession of a firearm, which carries a minimum sentence of five years. That's how simple it is to get swept up in this. Somebody can, yeah, I mean, it can be inadvertent. For number five, the breadth of the prohibition on people with non-immigrant visas is also really under-disclosed or under-discussed. Some examples of people in the U.S. on non-immigrant visas, international college students, all workers in H on H-1B visas, and most tourists. Gun possession is a strict definition under this law and includes handling a gun or ammo even for a few minutes without firing, even in the owner's presence. Legally, non-immigrant visa holders are in the same category as convicted murderers. Now, there are some exceptions for non-immigrant visa holders. Some are esoteric, like being a distinguished foreign visitor who's been so designated by the Department of State. But the main one is that you can possess a gun or ammo if you maintain a valid hunting license. That sounds like a never-enforced anachronism, but people get prosecuted over it. Like the case of a Saudi student convicted under 922G because a rental range owner freaked out at the sight of Saudis at his range and called the feds. Students were convicted imprisoned, and then deported after their prison term or the case of chinese students at the university of arizona they bought hunting licenses so they thought they were okay but somebody didn't like that they were collecting guns and reported them to the police prosecutors said that because the students were non-immigrant visa holders they should have bought non-resident arizona hunting license that meant the resident hunting license they bought retroactively invalid which made their gun possession a felony no 922G uh, prosecution, but the guns were confiscated and analyzed lives were turned upside down. And even more upside down wrinkle, some visitors whose home countries have friendly relations with the U.S. can apply for entry at the border instead of getting a visa. When that's granted, it's called a status, not a visa. So then they can possess a gun because they're not on a non-immigrant visa. They're not on a visa at all. Now, federal law very absurdly makes a felon out of almost every tourist who comes to the U.S. and shoot a gun, which in places like Las Vegas, gun tourism is actually a thing. If you come from England or Japan and you want to shoot at a range or return on a student visa, still a federal felony for you if you go shooting, unless, of course, you've gotten a hunting license, even if the range visit is completely unrelated to the hunting So right now, as it sits today for Larry Vickers, it's very much a Greek tragedy that this prohibited person's law affects him. And the much broader tragedy is that it felonizes millions of people who don't even know it. And there's not much to like about federal gun law, but today's version of 922G is particularly ripe for the dustbin. Because like I said, you know, this was what happened with Larry Vickers was basically a paperwork error. This is the same thing as where they're shutting down FFLs. And I think maybe they might have looked at Larry Vickers, who is very well known within the gun community, and said, this would be a good way for us to go. We can get this would be a twofer. I don't know. I do not know. It is a shame, whatever it is. It is a doggone shame. And maybe, just maybe, we need to take a look at that 1968 Gun Control Act again and make a few modifications to that. Because sometimes the punishment does not fit the crime, especially if it's a pen and ink or a paperwork error. Especially if it's somebody who has helped law enforcement as long as he has and military units and everything else. Sometimes your actions speak volumes our number two is inbound this is lock and load